You're listening to a podcast from the RSA. You can find out more about RSA events and projects and how to get involved with the fellowship by visiting our website, thersa.org. I'm Matthew Taylor. I'm the Chief Executive of the RSA. It's my great pleasure to welcome you here for today's special lunchtime event. Is this the last one of our year? So fittingly, for our last public event in 2016, we've gathered an expert panel to help us review what has been an extraordinary year. The Brexit vote, the Trump presidency, the tragic continuation of conflict, terror, migration, war. 2016 has been a year of unpredictability, of anxiety, of unrest, and often of anger. And I don't suspect many of us think that 2017 is going to be um, a return to business as usual. Each of our reviewers today is a distinguished academic and so is used to contextualising the events of history and seeing them with a long-view perspective. Uh, so to help us um, understand uh, the year and to distinguish, as they say, the signal from the noise, we're delighted to be joined by Matthew Goodwin, who's a political scientist specialising in British and European politics, extremism, immigration and Euroscepticism. He's currently Professor of Politics at the University of Kent and Senior Visiting Fellow at Chatham House. His 2015 book, Revolt on the Right, was the Paddy Power political book of the year. I can even hold it up. There it is. Um, Sarah Churchwell is Professor of American Literature and Chair of Public Understanding of the Humanities at the University of London's School of Advanced Study. Sarah writes widely across culture and politics, appears regularly as a commentator on television and radio, and she's the award-winning, an award-winning author. Her most recent book is Careless People, Murder, Mayhem and the Invention of the Great Gatsby. Peter Frankopan is a senior research fellow at Worcester College, Oxford, and director of the Centre for Byzantine Research at Oxford University. Is it Byzantine or Byzantine? Byzantine or Byzantine? What is? We've got more interesting things to talk about. <laughs> but, is, which one, but which one is it? Uh, I think Byzantine. Byzantine. Okay. But Byzantine good. for our American friends. Thank you. Okay. Good. Sorry. Sure. Centre for Byzantine Research, Oxford University. His university claimed an award-winning book, The Silk Roads, which I'm actually currently reading at home, and it's great. Um, a new history of the world was named. <laughs> by Berliner Zeitung is not just the most important history book in years, but the most important in decades. So the way we're going to structure things uh, is that each of our speakers, uh, in the order that I've introduced them, is going to lead for about you know, five, six, seven minutes, no more than seven minutes, uh, on a particular area of expertise that they've got. Then the other two uh, panellists are going to respond for a couple of minutes, and then if there's time, we're going to bring you in. So we're going to talk about, first of all, Brexit, secondly, Trump, and then thirdly, instability in the world, geopolitics, what's kind of going on in terms of how the world is changing and the ways in which we can learn from history about that. So first of all, I'm going to turn to Matthew to talk to us about Brexit and how we should understand. I think there's a broad view that your analysis of Brexit is the most kind of sophisticated. So kind of tell us what your analysis is of why Brexit happened and also what we need to learn from it and also what you think might happen next in seven minutes, starting from now. <laughs> well, let me, uh, let me start with a, a very brief story. Uh, we, we sat down to write that book in 2013, and we wanted to look at how British society is changing, long-term social change. And the one thing, basically, that we, uh, we've, we discovered was that certain social groups were feeling incredibly marginalised, not only economically, but also culturally. They're holding a set of values that are very different from what you might call the liberal mainstream set of values, and they were very uh, dissatisfied with the way in which our politics were responding to them. Uh, fast forward to the beginning of 2014, and we had the luxury of going into the Labour Party to present the research to Ed Miliband and his, uh, his team. Um, didn't get it. Just didn't get it. Um, didn't think it was an issue. Didn't think the rise of a, a new Eurosceptic party was an issue. Thought it was hurt, hurting the Conservatives. Um, said, well, look, actually, we're making arguments about cost of living, economics, wages, jobs... Um, these will cut through. Fast forward to the 2015 general election. Of course, Labour uh, goes to its third lowest number of uh, seats since 1935. Um, big uh, loss of working class voters. Fast forward to the referendum. Nearly 70% of Labour constituencies voted for Brexit. Uh, and you begin to actually see the, the real hemorrhaging of support away from not only from Labour but also... Um, the mainstream among voters who for around 30 years have felt as though uh, the economic transformation of Britain has not really been uh, very beneficial to them, but also the cultural transformation of Britain has not been uh, very, very uh, comfortable or, or, or uh, you know, what they've wanted. Uh, 
So then when you drill down and you look at the, the dynamics of the Brexit vote, you really see this long-term social change playing out. And you know, Brexit, what happened in 2016 is, is interesting, but, but it, you know, what it actually did was give full expression to these much deeper divides that have been building in Britain and most other Western democracies for, for many years. Um, and so we are left as a country that essentially is divided along three lines. We're divided by social class. We're divided by... Uh, generation. We're also divided by geography, um, you know, political geography as well. And I, I struggle to see how we're now actually going to reconcile some of those divides because so much of it is about more than just this sort of transactional economic uh, debate that we're having nationally about, well, the single market's good for us, therefore we should stay as close as possible and we should accept free movement. When we know that the voters who delivered Brexit are thinking about this in a far more... Uh, diffuse lens of identity, uh, of perceived threats to values, ways of life, and the national community. And, you know, they've also shown themselves, not only in the UK, but also the US, to be now politically mobilised. You know, around 2.5 million extra voters turned out on, on polling day that we, we didn't really anticipate in the polls. Um, and, and they're highly committed, and they're now likely to remain highly committed to the political process to ensure that their vision of Brexit is one that is, is enacted. Uh, and I think, you know, that has forced all of us to rethink. It's for, forced pollsters to rethink the way they model. It's forced academics to think, are we talking to the right people? Are we using the right methodologies? Because our surveys, to be frank, weren't great uh, on a lot of this stuff. Uh, and it's also, you know, forcing politics to think more broadly about the way in which they communicate with uh, different social groups. So I sort of wanted to come in, wanted to be optimistic about where we are. I'm actually quite pessimistic because when I look at the mainstream now, I mean, I say the political mainstream, I'm not really hearing much that is going to get us into a more uh, unified uh, place. I'm hearing a lot of the same arguments, the same narratives that we heard before the 2015 general election, before the referendum. You know, Labour's saying this is transactional resource politics. Conservatives are pitching to their traditional base, and there isn't much that's pushing the argument forward. Um, so I, I'm, I'm pessimistic in terms of where we are now. When I was, um, a few weeks ago, I was uh, at a conference, and one of the other speakers was um, a kind of uber-cosmopolitan liberal public intellectual. And he was delighted because on that day, um, the court ruling came through. Right, yeah. And I said to him, don't you see that this is disastrous? Because this just reframes the whole issue as the elite versus the public. This is before the Daily Mail headline. And so that was a moment for me of kind of pessimism because it felt as though the, the way in which a lot of Remainers have responded to Brexit is almost calculated to increase the sense amongst levers, that there is a kind of liberal establishment disdain for them and an attempt, as it were. And I, I was talking to Dara Mattinson, that she'd done some polling and she found that people were even more disenchanted than they were before. And also there is a very strong sense amongst people out there that there is something fishy going on, that there is an attempt to stand in the way of what it is they voted for. Mm. And this is a, a kind of dangerous feeling. I think even... Even before the referendum, if you looked at, say, the British social attitudes uh, data and you just looked at working class respondents, the percentage who said uh, people in government don't speak for people like me reached its record height two years before the referendum. So we sort of knew there was a really strong sense of disenchantment, dissatisfaction. The gamble, essentially, that the middle class elite made was that those voters wouldn't turn out. Uh, I was doing some polling on the day of the referendum, and let me tell you... Uh, you know, we had people outside a lot of polling stations. Brexit was seven points ahead by 10 a.m. Those groups could not wait to get out. It was almost as if, you know, this had been, you know, they'd been waiting for 20 years and then the option was, you know, do I vote for Brexit or do I go to the garden centre? And they, uh, they voted en masse for, 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 for Brexit. And I think the, the problem, and uh, a friend said this to me recently, the, the, the issue is that we've become incredibly scared about talking to these questions of culture, identity, and also academics have been very bad at understanding the power of emotion in political mobilisation because you can't really operationalise it. You can't put a nice question on a survey that gets at these things. You're talking about betrayal. You're talking about loss. And you're talking about how people respond to that uh, in terms of what they're witnessing at their, in their communities. I think that is where we need to do a lot of more research because it's, you know, the effects of this are going to carry on 
playing out for many, many years to come. Uh, Sarah, you're going to be talking about Trump. So um, you can't be superior to us as an American. But what you can do <laughs> is you can reflect... Uh, you can reflect on us. How do you perceive the state of this, this country now as an outsider to an extent and, and the, the British psyche? What do you think is kind of going on for us? Well, I'm, I'm less and less of an outsider as every day goes by. I've lived here for 17 years now. And, um, yeah. Yeah, so, and, yeah, I've got three, three more and, and we'll count uh, you in. Thank you very much. And, uh, and I became a British citizen earlier this year. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. It, it had not occurred to me when I did that that I might someday be uh, seeking the shelter of Her Majesty from my own government, <laughs> but we'll, we'll come on to that later. Um, but um, no, all kidding aside, it was, uh, you know, I, will be, I will be very frank and say that that was a, that was a difficult decision for me to take. And the loom, not the looming prospect of Brexit as such, because I was among those who didn't really think it would happen. Um, and, you know, paint me a liberal metropolitan elite if you want. I, probably all of those things apply um, in whatever ways you might think they do. But um, I didn't think it would happen. But one could see the writing on the wall in terms of the attitude toward people who weren't born here. And I have had this conversation um, a lot because I, I have found it... Um, uh, it has felt significant to me and important to me in the way that the debate about immigration happens here, for me to keep pointing out to people that I, too, am an immigrant. Um, not in order to suggest that I, too, am a, am a victim, because it has been very, very easy for me to move here. It was very, very easy for me to move here. But precisely because when people say that this is an argument about immigrants taking jobs and not an argument about xenophobia, I have to say that has not been my experience. Um, because I did take a job from a British person, and nobody has ever objected to it. Um, by, but by definition, I did. Um, but, you know, I'm a native speaker and my name is English sounding and, you know, and all of those things. So my own personal anecdotal and emotional experience, and I think Matthew's point about emotion is extremely important here, um, has been that it, was, that it is easier for people like me um, uh, to do this. But there was a, tiny, a turning tide of resentment and one could feel it and one worried about one's legal status in the country. And... Um, and I just thought I need to, I need to be sure that, that I am a part of this uh, legally. And then you have to have the really serious emotional, uh, personal questions with yourself, your family, your loved ones about who you are and whether this is an identity that you uh, embrace and whether you're, you, know, you don't want to just do it for technical or, or cynical reasons. Um, but So for me, it was a very, very complicated emotional thing to do. And then Britain went and voted Brexit, which you know, didn't make me feel very happy about the whole thing. Um, so I'll come out and say, uh, I think it's one of, hopefully one of the advantages of being an academic, right, is I don't have to pretend to be a neutral journalist, right? And I think it's important to the point about emotion and perspective that we all be honest about where we come from and not try to kind of um, evade various issues. So my perspective on, on where things are is that I, I agree that, um, and I, I would, if I can dare say from the point of view of an outsider, I don't think the British have ever been famed for their ability at talking about emotions. Um, <laughs> And this is a particularly emotionally uh, laden issue. I think I would use another word as well, which is that we as a society, an Anglo-American culture, have really struggled lately to talk about values in a constructive way, in a way that isn't finger-pointing, that isn't doubling down and digging in your heels and demonizing the other, but is finding a ways to say, what are our common values? Uh, where do we come together? Which isn't necessarily to say, and this will come to this with Trump, I'm sure, too, that you, that you have to empathize with people or that kind of argument, but, but rather to just say, what do, what do we have in common? What, what are we trying to build? What is the nature of this democracy? What is the nature of this society? And it is incumbent upon both sides to try to find a way forward in that conversation. I feel like some of the stuff about the elite versus, you know, the Remainers versus the Brexiters and, and the assumption that the, that the Remainers are elitist... Um, it, there becomes a kind of uh, reverse snobbery, which is as if that position must also be discounted, and we must only consider the emotions of the people who voted to leave, and, and it's as if we're being held hostage to a certain set of emotions, and other kinds of emotions are being discounted. And so what I'd like to do is to find a way for everybody to say there are strong emotions on both sides, there are strong values on both sides. Where is the common ground? How do we find it? How do we rebuild it? I am, I am a, a committed centrist. I don't know how else you deal with polarized 
sides and hold the center together rather than, than shore up your center ground. Part of the problem, and I'll stop now, I know I'm doing my five minutes on Brexit instead of on Trump, um, but is that the centrist ground was taken over by a set of neoliberal policies that people are rejecting on both sides of the aisle. So we also have to find a different way to envision how centrism might function um, politically and in terms of policy. Sorry, that was much no, 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 it's great. But, uh, Peter, this notion that, that, that Sarah's talking about the centre cannot hold, as it were... You know, it has to hold. But, but in your, your book, in one of the interesting, fascinating things about reading your book is that because you've truncated so much history in, from so many parts of the world, is that almost as soon as a, you describe a nation or an empire in the ascendancy, you're describing its decline and, its, and the fissures within it. So this characteristic that I guess we're going to be talking about, which is of a kind of deep cultural divide within societies, societies which also face profound external challenges and internal challenges. Is there anything to give us hope? Is there, uh, can you think, can you dredge up from your history, play, play, times which have felt as bad as this, where something has a unifying force, someone has come forward and, and, and managed to, to re, uh, reunite people? Uh, well, it's a very good question. I mean, the answer is yes and no. I mean, in fact, with these kinds of things... Uh, it's the stage is set for a leader with, who is able to provide a vision and a plan and to be a leader. And to, that's what we're all waiting for. And for whatever reasons, the problems in the Labour Party, the problems in the Conservative Party, the structure of our Parliament right now, it doesn't look like there's anybody on the, on the national political stage who's able to explain what is going on, what is in store, that has credibility. And all the people involved here who either are in leadership positions or work for people who are in leadership positions recognise that a good leader is, is able to be honest about what the difficulties are ahead and, and don't try and pull the wool over your eyes and they try and explain a, re- a rational way out of this. And um, that is a real worry. I suppose adding to the pessimism, the point about division, I only add to Matthew that those divisions go through many more than your three headline factors. We all know uh, things like gender, the fact that women aren't paid at the same level that men are, racial, dis- racial discrimination, the increasing amount of residential racial segregation that we have in this country, in the developed world as a whole. The house of the West, the United States, Europe, look divided. And as a historian, looking back at this long period of history, uh, well, you know, it looks to me that we're on the Titanic and it's sinking. You know, we are, it is, it, the West, the sun is setting, full stop. The question is how quickly or slowly that happens. My own view about Brexit is in the long run, we're still going to be in the icy water and it's game over. Probably on balance, if you've all seen Titanic, you're better off, Kate Winslet and DiCaprio would have been better off getting in that lifeboat than trying to both be on the door. But that, that profile of worries about elites, uh, worries about migration, uh, questions about values, lack of leadership, the navel-gazing, is one that are the classic signs of the disintegration of, any, of, of sunset in any period, in any region, over history. Those, those existential questions about how do we work out who we are, how do we find a way through this, there can be moments when an inspirational leader emerges from the gloom. And so you can't, as a historian, you learn to respect, you can't guess how the future is going to emerge. But the fundamentals of where we are in the world today is that the West is falling and dying. It has to because of demographics, because of industrial production, because of GDP, because of standards of living, because of our costs. And the East is, is rising. And it's just a question of calibrating that speed. I'm going to bring you back to respond to those comments, but before I do, let's just take two or three, and I'm, I'm particularly keen to hear from anyone who's got any hope. <laughs> yes, uh, let's have a little word of hope here. Thank you so much. I'm with Peter, and I think Brexit is a wonderful... Um, I, I'm a migrant. I grew up amongst migrants, and so I'd always consider myself a global citizen, and whatever country I worked and lived in, I contributed to massively. And I now feel that I'm just waiting for Mrs May to throw me out um, after 30-plus I'm not hearing the hope yet. No, you're not. Well, you see, I was sort of global... As a global citizen, I had a place in the world. And Brexit is a wonderful distraction with what's happening in the Middle East. I grew up amongst people from the Yemen and the Lebanon and Syria. And so, no, it's not hope. I think you're absolutely right when talking about civilizations do die. I lived in Rome. I lived in Luca. Luca once had an empire, and so did Venezia. Okay. So, Thanks for lifting our spirits. Um, do you want to pass the microphone here, and then we'll take one other comment, and I'll bring you back in. Uh, my name's Tom Dennis. What I'd, what I'd like to hear from you is whether you think... I mean, I've heard, um, Peter, you say there isn't one, but 
Where is there a leader? Because we, we have a, uh, a political system which is also, I think, already dead. And there's all these people who are grappling around trying to make it live. But it, is, it has already died. It's so hard to touch. It, the, I mean, this country really, really needs a leader uh, who can create a, a, a new system of some sort. I think behind which an awful lot of people, particularly the sort of the Bernie Sanders type thinking people, would follow. So, can you think of one? One has to recognise that half the, well, give or take half the electorate in this country and in the States did see that leader. Their leader is someone who did speak to define a vision and explain a set of solutions. Now, we'll argue about, well, no, we won't argue. I'm sure we'll agree that the, 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 the solutions proposed are catastrophic, but the fact of identifying what is wrong is what got Brexit through and what got Trump through. And there is fundamental truth in what Trump and what Brexit was about. Yeah, finally, very briefly. There is a hope. And hope is that we fix our economy. If we can fix the uh, national economy, the world economy, yes, we can get together again. But again, so it's easy said than done, of course. Thank you. Okay. Right. Um, um, we, we feel like a room ready for a kind of messianic leader, which, yeah. is, uh, <laughs> which is not necessarily a kind of good state of mind to be in, particularly for this audience, you know. I think what's really interesting is actually... Well, I'm thinking about uh, myself. No, no, go on. <laughs> It's sort of everybody seems to be converging on uh, the role of agency, not not structure and demand, and that's quite interesting because the debate is often about you know the left behind and how the economic system has marginalised certain groups and how the foundations are shifting. But what I'm hearing is actually agency is what's going to save the West, whether that's in the form of a new leader or a new movement or a new party. I mean, if I just spin this, the 30-second hope version of this uh, discussion is actually all the populists in the West are being forced to operate within democratic frameworks. Support for democracy is still very high. Public interest in politics is still very high. Groups that have historically... So I, saw, I saw a graph yesterday. No, is this about millennials? Yeah, not, no, not, not being democratic. That's you... in, it, that is an inaccurate graph that, oh. that I would suggest. Pippa oh. Norris has, and the monkey cage has uh, d- d- put, pulled that graph t- t- to pieces, and I encourage you to look at the monkey cage, which is linked to Washington Post. Right, good. That's inaccurate. Okay. Um, but groups that historically have been leaving the political process have been coming back to the political process, whether in terms of older white working-class voters in the US and Brexit, or whether in terms of economically disaffected groups. They've been coming back into politics. And, yeah, sure, I mean, you know, shocker, liberal elite in London doesn't like it, right, or doesn't like the view. But there is a silver lining to Brexit, which is that actually, if you believe in a sort of pluralist conception of democracy, the marketplace of ideas where everybody brings something to the table, then what happened in 2016 is good for liberal democracy, it means that actually we have a diversity of opinion and we have uh, issues and demands on the table that we need to think about and talk about. Thank There's you. a hope version. That's good. That's good. So, Sarah. Yeah. Uh, no. Uh, we're pondering. Um, so, Sarah, uh, you didn't think Brexit was going to happen. It did happen. Did you think Trump was going to happen? Of course not. Right. Um, of course I didn't. And and how we, there's a kind of common understanding, which is that... that to understand Brexit, if you had to choose one thing, it would be economics. But yeah. if you had to understand Trump, you chose one thing, it would have to be culture. Is that, is that a, a correct reading? Well, I think uh, cult, uh, cult, uh, this is going to get semantic very quickly, but I think culture is too broad a church to answer that question. Um, I think that um, I, if, if, if I had to choose one word to explain Trump, I would say media. Um, and I mean all kinds of media and all kinds of things that are implicated in the word media, rather than, including the fact that in America all political coverage is for profit, which was a massively important factor in Trump. Um, so, um, but I think there are there are all kinds of things that we need. Obviously, that factored in um, to Trump's success. I was I was asked not too long ago, in fact, two days after the election, to explain how Trump got elected. And I started in good academic way to say, well, there were myriad factors. You have to think about the media and you have to think about resentment. And, you have to, and then I suddenly said, actually, no, two words. He lied. Um, and I think that's a really important part. He lied. He, he, yeah, he set out a vision. It was, it was totally untrue. Um, but they liked the vision. So, um, so that matters. Um, I think that in terms of... Um, to, 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 to think about Trump in terms of the points that we've already raised, though, I think can be useful, which is both the question of history and the question of hope. Um, 
So I'm still struggling to come to terms with Trump's election, not because I didn't like it, not because I don't like his party. I, str- I didn't like the fact that George W. Bush won. What's happened with Trump is transformative in a very, very different way. Um, and I think most people recognize that. Um, this is not a question of, not, of, not, of my party not getting in. Um, this is a question of all of the democratic institutions of America being very clearly and very aggressively under threat right now by somebody who is very clearly a kleptocrat. Um, and that is a, a very serious situation, and he does not seem to be being held to account by the Congress that has sworn to uphold the Constitution and to stop this from happening. We're supposed to have checks and balances. That doesn't seem to be happening. Some people think that um, the GOP is waiting to impeach him on day one over the emoluments cause clause, which he's which he said he is going to be in breach of, um, uh, in order that they can install Pence because they would prefer Pence. Um, I, who knows? I can't. I couldn't tell you what is in the GOP's head right now because I can't believe that they're making the decisions that they're making, except that they're very clearly, in my view, putting party above nation in a way that I find totally despicable, um, above world um, in a way that I find despicable. Um, so that's my f- fear. Those are my worries. Um, but when I look at history, I find a little bit of reason for hope. Um, as you mentioned, I wrote a book about the Great Gatsby. And um, in 1920, America, you know, Gatsby, of course, the great novel of the 20s, and the American Dream. Um, and um, in 1920, America voted in its first businessman president on a platform, America First. He was called Warren G. Harding. That phrase might sound familiar because Trump used it too. Um, and America First was eventually used by uh, Lindbergh in the anti-Semitic campaigns in the late 1930s. Um, the, um, Warren G. Harding was a friend of businessmen, uh, of businessmen, of business, and, uh, and at the same time, there was, it was an anti-immigration, it was an isolationist, nativist movement. There was a huge spike in the KKK and in hate crime in the 20s during his administration and in the administrations that followed him. Two more businessmen followed him, Coolidge. He, by the way, stopped being president because he died of a heart attack during the biggest corruption scandal in the 20th century American political history, the Teapot Dome scandal. His vice president, Coolidge, took over, also friendly to business, and then uh, Hoover took over friendly to business, and in 1929, Wall Street crashed. At that point, America in the 1930s started having conversations that are uncannily like the ones that are being had now, um, in exactly the ways that Peter was describing a minute ago. Who are we? Can we put our house in order? What, what do, and, and they absolutely were saying that democracy had failed. It was over. The American experiment was over, and it had been shown that it would not work. And then Roosevelt was elected and rebuilt it. And he, re- and he was building the welfare state at the same time that Britain was building its welfare state. Um, the war helped. The military-industrial complex helped. So I'm not suggesting that there is an easy solution here. But I am suggesting that history shows us, and, and certainly this is obviously modern history in a snapshot, the long view may well still be that Roosevelt was a, a blip on a long decline. And I wouldn't dispute that until we see where the graph ends up. But... But if we, if we zoom in on it, there are still dips and troughs to come. So can we rise out of this? Yes, we can. Um, can, we, can we rebuild? Yes, we can. And I think that, I mean, I, this is Obama. God, I'm like channeling Obama. Um, but um, but I, I think that there, we also have to remember the way the American political system works. Um, 65 to, I think we're at 66 now million Americans voted for Hillary. Uh, more people than ever voted for any white man uh, in history, although I have to say, nobody has yet pointed out that's because there are more Americans than there ever were before, which I keep thinking must be part of the I equation. It. I, read it, I read it yesterday. Okay, good. Somebody finally, I was like, isn't that really the reason why? Um, <laughs> I'm not a statistician, but I suspect that might be in there somewhere. Um, but, um, but anyway, it's important. And, um, and those people are very, very angry. And um, those people are very angry at what Trump is doing, regardless of whether the Republicans hold him to account. And we have a little thing called midterm elections, two years. So one of the big questions is what happens if, if the Americans who did not want Trump in push back? I don't know the answer to that question, but it, the game's not over yet. So can I ask you, so when I was in, when I, when I was in the, the States about a week ago, I kind of sensed talking to the people I spoke to were weren't Trump enthusiasts. <laughs> there was a kind of ambivalence. There was one group of, there was one response, which is, well, he's the president now. Mm. We have to forget the past. Uh-huh. We have to hope he's going to be better than we thought. And we just have to, as it were, try and hold into account on the assumption that he's now, as president, going to run the country as, you should run the country as president, versus people who sound a bit more like you, which is, he's a lying bastard and, you know, we've got to fight him. What do you think, is, 
is that the kind of choice that people face? Am I, am I misportraying you in saying that, that your position is... No, continue that's a very to... fair statement of my position. Right. Um... So, so you think there's no... Do you think, do you think it's incredible, those people who say, whatever I think of him, he is now our president, and we must now give him the benefit of the doubt? No, I don't think it's incredible at all, and I, and I admire them in one sense. I think the problem is, is that... And this is why Trump keeps winning... Um, is that people are behaving in a reasonable manner towards somebody who is behaving unreasonably. And, that, and to continue to do that is a kind of definition of madness. So they still want to play by the old rules, as if, as if you know, he'll, it, it's okay, he'll become, he'll become like everybody else eventually. Well, so far, there's zero evidence of that. Um, and every time we thought he would do that, he didn't do it. He's broken every single rule except the ones that, that you know, suited him. So he's an opportunist, um, very, very clearly. As soon as I see him start to do any of those swings to, to normality or strings, swings to, to, to... Or any kind of, of, of um, acknowledgement of the, of, the, of the fact that he also is a subject of the rule of law is actually that there are democratic processes and principles to which he is supposed to be held accountable. But he clearly thinks that he's unaccountable. Now, I don't actually think that he doesn't have plans, and I, I do think he's a loose cannon firing at will, but there are clearly things he wants to achieve. Um, and, you, and you asked me to, to say in a, in a word what it was that got him there. In a word, what he wants to achieve is money. Um, in a word, what he wants to achieve is power. Um, that's very, very clear. We can all see the narcissism and all of that stuff. How that's but he's very, very erratic and unpredictable in the way that that plays out. And so the, the idea that we can trust this guy to play nice, I find deeply, deeply naive. And so it's not that I don't respect their attempt to try to return to some level of civility. I want civil discourse. I was arguing for it a minute ago. We need it. Um, but can you have civil discourse with somebody who's an, you know, a tyrant who's screaming his head off and saying that he's going to lock up his opponents? I'm not sure civil discourse is the way to go. So, so Peter, uh, how do, what, what, what does history tell us about how people who, who get power on a populist ticket manage to continue to be popular? I mean, I guess the sense is that he has a choice. He either goes respectable and loses a lot of his support, or else he tries to run the country as he's run his campaign, in which case things could get much, much worse. If, if he was looking through history, what tips would he get? Well, you know, I think we were talking a little bit about it beforehand. You know, the, the, I think this idea that um, Trump is the first politician who's learned how to play the media and stay in the spotlight and detract attention by change is, is, is crazy. I mean, it just that shows the narrowness of the goldfish bowl that we swim around worrying about how 2016 and this is somehow awful. I mean, I think that there are... You have to judge on actions. I mean, I suppose to Matthew's point... You know, it is right that people be, the more people engaged in, in public debate, the, more, the higher the levels of accountability. And there are passions running through the media, the social media is changing the way in which the ability and the speed at which people communicate, that, that Trump will have to be judged on his actions. And it's, of course, in nobody's interests, not just in the States, in this room, all over the world, for Trump to make short-term, narrow-minded, dangerous decisions. And I think we have to distinguish between the fear of what well, and Sarah's probably right, it's, it's quite likely to happen between hoping that the wind catches in the best possible way. And the problem is going to be Trump's ability to deliver what he's promised and how is he able to explain that as and when the jobs don't come back to Detroit quickly enough or uh, the types of issues with Black Lives Matters or the types of profiling, the types of all the kind of, all the sort of problems that we all can see in the States is, where, you know, where do you start? It's when those don't get solved quickly enough. And there there is a danger, I think, when there's high le higher levels of public engagement is that it's quite easy for really to shut down and become more autocratic. So I think we are in slightly uncharted territories uh, with Trump. Uh, you know, there has been in the last month, it's very hard to read the signals of what kind of Trump he's going to be. I mean, he's surrounded himself by very rich, white, so-called alpha males, which is, you know... With a remarkable record of domestic abuse among them, as a matter of fact. Well, OK. I mean, yeah, there we go. Yeah, you know, and nothing surprises me in 2016, but if I was here in 1016, nothing would surprise me either. I mean, the... the <laughs> Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that the more worrying. Thing, I mean, the, the only two points I pick up on what Sarah is that you know the, the, the truth is, and I, I do. I should have made a distinction between the United States and Europe. You know, the United States has got pieces of the puzzle that can be corrected and can put steam back in the engine. Uh, you know, we are in the West, Europe, and in the States, remarkably resilient. You know, and that we have we have quite a good record of getting through these problems. We can talk about Hitler in the thirties too much and becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. But we, we have been quite good at finding ways of talking. 
The worry is, is that what, what really did pick the American economy up and put America center stage and what picks all economies up is military conflict. And that is, a, that is something that goes back 3,000 years. You can see leaders who are distracted. They create the volume for their businesses. They create explanations for why they're suffering. They get people out of the factories and onto the front lines. And those kind of models, we are fools if we think that the only people who commit acts of violence are in Yemen or Aleppo, particularly in the continent of, of Europe. We were talking before, uh, Matthew, about this question of, you know, is 2017 the year of betrayal as people realise that Brexit doesn't give them what they want? That Trump. So what, what do you think happens when populism fails? Yeah, I think we're having this interesting debate about post-liberalism. I think we're going to go into a parallel debate about post-populism. And what I mean by that is what, what happens when populists don't deliver. And if you look at the Brexit debate and the Trump debate, there's a sort of an assumption running through both of them. When the Rust Belt realises that Trump is not going to revive it, they will go back to the Democrats. When Brexit voters realise that hard Brexit is economically damaging, they're going to go back to the mainstream. There is an alternative hypothesis, which is that actually they just become more angry, more frustrated, and they blame the elite, whether it's the EU, whether it's Washington, for, for failing to, to sustain their, their living standards. And that is my criticism of social democracy at the moment. And when I listen to... Brits, um, but also my American, my Amer- my American uh, colleagues talking about Trump. Here's my worry. There's a, there's a similarity between the Democrats, between the Labour Party and progressives on the continent, which is they are now talking a hell of a lot more about the faults in their opponents than their own intellectual project. And my concern for the progressive left is that they are losing on that battle quite heavily on the uh, issues of identity, migration, culture, values. And unless they start saying what they're for rather than what they're against, even if it's a you know, narcissistic maniac, um, they're not going to be in the game. Literally a couple of comments from the room. Uh, these three, but make them really quick because I've got so little time. Yeah. Perhaps we're not looking for a new leader, but we're looking for a new plan and a new vision and a new deal and a new Marshall plan. And I would like to just draw in what happened this year at... Uh, COP22 in Marrakesh. I was in the American Pavilion the morning of the uh, Trump election and there was a big down, but there was a huge global upswelling and a new declaration came out of Marrakesh that we must do this because the physics trumps the politics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I read Peter's book about a year ago and it gave me huge hope and I sort of felt confident that we were going to have all these traumas with Trump and Brexit, etc. But the issue for me is that apathy is over. And we're now engaged in debate where we were stuck in apathy. Okay. And then finally? Do you think Trump was the first Machiavellian president? Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, that's fine. Okay, now, um, Peter. The, uh, You're the worst. You're not the first. Uh, Peter, the, what's going on geopolitically in the world? I mean, let's, I'm just gonna, let's just start with one moment, if that's right, which is President Assad holding out an olive branch to President Trump and saying, you know, let's put this behind us and start all over. So that's just, I just take that, that moment of inflection, what that moment could represent and what's, and from that, tell us how to understand what's going on in the world. Well, uh, you know, the, that's uh, seven minutes, eh? Okay. Uh, you know, I think part of, the, part of our problem is when we have the sort of concept of spatial geography, we think of uh, Britain, a Brexit, we spend a lot of time on that, Europe, you know, and the United States, and then the rest of the world. And when we think about the rest of the world, we sort of start with Aleppo, say Yemen, and that's kind of it. Uh, and, um, you know, there's 70% of the world's population live between Istanbul and Shanghai. And uh, there is the trauma of Aleppo and of Syria specifically to talk about. I'd have, I'd have thought the most useful and interesting two points are first that it doesn't look like the mechanisms set up by the international community whether it's through the UN or other agencies are I hate the word fit for purpose you'll have hated it as well from uh, but they don't work um, that's clear and second the sort of absolute inability for anybody outside that region to make successful intervention apart from Tehran and Moscow and uh, two years ago, uh, we had MPs punching the fist pumping that we weren't going to intervene in Syria. And now it's all about uh, how we did too little too late and browbeating brow and so on. We, we are very bad at reacting correctly. We react emotionally and we react to events as they're unfolding without ever stopping to think maybe we should have, we should work backwards from the solutions. So when William Hague decided to intervene in Libya and announced that it was time that Gaddafi should go, that whole, purpose, that whole idea of how we misread the Arab Spring, how we misread the world around us, 
Well, that happens when you don't educate people. You know, and here in this building, within the RSA, it's all, and you can't have enlightenment if you don't have expertise. And the idea that politicians turn on experts and turn on academics, you know, the greatest single problem facing our country, and where we're slipping behind the rest of the world, in fact, this morning in the reports, is the quality of the primary and secondary education that we provide for our children. And that makes a civilization and its culture and its sciences and everything around us grow. So in most of the parts of the world that I work on, 2016 has been a terrific year. Uh, growth has carried on. People are talking about how do they cooperate closer and better together. Uh, in Iran, there's a sense that Iran is being welcomed back into the family of nations, whether Trump decides to, as, as well, in fact, John Kerry, who has nothing to do with Trump, two years ago was, was talking about not ruling out the nuclear option against Iran, which I think didn't mean getting very angry in a nuclear way. I think he meant military nuclear force. Other parts of the world, Russia, Central Asia, India, Pakistan, China, and whatever, there are lots of fracture and fragility points but there is a growing recognition that you can only win if you cooperate together. Pakistan and India is a particularly tri tricky one in that sort of model, but that growing levels of dialogue, the attempts to try to cooperate together, including even increasingly in places like Afghanistan, where levels of local commitment have been relatively low and have gone wrong, but increasingly the part of the world from, from Turkey east is seeing that the West talks and doesn't act, and when it does act, it, it makes bad decisions, and they're not just bad decisions today, they're the, it's the same mistakes again and again and again. And it's, it's boring being a historian saying that you need to learn from history because it's trite and it's sort of... But, but the problem is it, it, it comes back to uh, levels of, of, uh, of education and knowledge. And when you have parliaments uh, who don't have MPs who speak these languages, who don't know anything other than what they've learnt about Lord Salisbury and uh, the reform laws and the First and Second World War and their focus of vision is Henry VIII and doesn't get any further into the past, then we, 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 it's not surprising that the rest of the world is trying to work out what does Europe and the US actually represent other than consumers. Part of, part of what drives people's perception, whether it's leaders or ordinary people on the ground, is, is, not, is, is which system looks like it's the most successful. And right now, it must look for lots of, as it were, people around the world thinking about where they're going to, allegiances are going to form, that actually authoritarian regimes seem to be much more effective than democratic regimes. Well, you know, I think we in the West have all been brought, I was brought up thinking democracy is a bit like asking at the end of a meal who wants tea and who wants coffee, and if more people put their hands up for one, you know, it's tough, you take your, take your you know, it's too bad, you have an election in four years' time, and if you don't like it, then, you know, you have a different... I think we, it, this idea that democracy can divide has come as a real shock to people here. I think that those of you involved in the business world know that... Um, organizations tend to work with a single leader at the top and they're top down. They have, they, they, the good organizations engage with the bottom up, they listen and so on and so forth. But leadership is very hard when you have multiple voices. And poor Theresa May has to juggle multiple constituencies. Uh, the EU, the idea of having 27, 28 nations trying to reach decisions together. We realize that these are a fundamental part of our fragility. And in all those countries that I mentioned, Turkey, Central Asian republics, Russia, uh, China, none of these are fully functional, well, they're not functional democracies at all. Their ideas about human rights, about tolerances, are on a different scale to ours. But that might just be that we're on a matrix heading in different directions. You know, when I was in Central Asia earlier this year, uh, you know, it's pointed out very, very carefully that Kazakhstan's GDP has gone up 80 times in the last 25 years. And wealth, and it's one of the themes of my book, wealth breeds prosperity and breeds tolerance. You know, if you think you can put food on your children's table and their life is going to be better than yours. Hard work, all those things that we are used to in Britain in the last three, four hundred years, uh, that all comes together because there's a purpose. But when societies start to narrow because there is economic contraction, and a gentleman asked, can we just fix the economies? The fundamentals here are that we can't keep growing. There are not the mechanics, there are not the people. And if automation, something I know you look at here a lot, is even at, even at 20 or 10% of what the predictions are in the next 10 to 15 years, we, we in Europe, you know, we are, we are not able to compete. And that, that flow of movement of GDP out of the developed economies into what's all called the emerging markets, which means basically anywhere that's not, doesn't have English as a second language at school. You know, we are, we are, out, of, we are out of position. And here, there, there are ways in which small, a little rock in the North Atlantic can prosper with very careful, pointed thoughts. And I've been very careful not to write anything in the press about that, about where Brexit has worked in the past, because there are cases where you can stay on that door 
and the Titanic, because I'm mixing lots of metaphors, mm. uh, and survive. But it needs to be planned, there needs to be a vision, and you start, you start with your education. The, the, Matthew, people's attitudes to globalisation. I remember years ago, you'd go to, you could go to an audience of very left-wing people, and they'd all say, we're anti-globalisation, and you'd say, well, where, where were your trainers made? And they'd go, oh, well, that's a bit embarrassing. So what do we know about public attitudes to globalisation and the kind of contra- and people's... You know, there's a general view that people are pulling back from it but, but, but people contradict you. They want to travel abroad, they want to buy stuff from all over the world, and then they say that globalisation isn't working. Yeah, I mean, if you look at... Uh, take, take Britain as an example, or um, it's also true across much of Europe. Um, I mean, the reason that I think we've seen so much volatility in the political world recently is you've now got a significant number of voters who are economically left-wing uh, in their views toward the markets and the global economy who say they want... Re- they want redistribution. They feel there's one law for the rich, another for the poor. They feel that the workers, you know, getting done over by the boss. Uh, they feel essentially life's unfair, but are also on social and cultural issues very right wing. And that goes some way to understanding why in April we'll all be talking about Marine Le Pen in the second round of the French presidential elections, because she's economically protectionist. She's spending as much time talking about what's wrong with the banks and McDonald's and Starbucks and people not paying corporations, corporations not paying tax, as she is about the threat to the French nation. So you've like, got that. Because that sounds like a slam dunk for nationalism. Because if got, you want that mixture of a kind of a left-of-centre economic <coughs> programme which says we've actually got a kind of, you know, we're mm. anti-global capitalism, but you also want a right-of-centre cultural agenda. Nationalism does tick both boxes, doesn't it? Well, I, I mean, one interpretation is it's a slam dunk. It, it's a strength for nationalism. Another is, you know, it's a big problem for social democrats because they're only speaking on one of those, ter- those dimensions. They're only speaking to the economics of it, the sort of living wage, protect the workers, they're not talking to the identity bit. So they're, getting, they're continually getting outflanked on that second dimension, and that's where you see... You know, the remarkable moment for me in 2016 was the Austrian elections, where the day after the Austrian elections, everyone was on social media, um, well, a few people on social media, <laughs> celebrating the fact that uh, um, Hoffer had got 46% of the vote and the Liberals had won. And I was thinking back to 2002 when Jean-Marie Le Pen got 18% of the votes in the second round of the presidential elections, and it was a global shock. But we've now got into this position, I'm going slightly off-piste here, but we've got into this position where actually 46% for a party that makes very critical remarks of, uh, toward globalisation, very critical toward Islam, uh, you know, is, is very popular among young Austrians, something that everybody overlooks because of this argument that the angry old white man's going to fade over the horizon and the new liberal young majority is going to emerge. You know, there are lots of cases in Europe where that simply is not true. Um, but that, for me, was a moment in 2016 that was a real kind of eye-opener, that we've, we have now completely lost sight of the extent to which nationalism is winning across multiple fronts in this uh, ideological uh, war. So I, I was listening to you, I was slightly um, depressed <laughs> being sort of in the house of the West thinking, crikey, we're going over the sunset. And I tried to offer a ray of hope earlier. But unless we start thinking about how to make an aggressive intellectual case, you know, we can sit around and talk about the problems with nationalism all day long. But uh, on many of these uh, fronts, you know, they seem to be winning. I've heard it said that there's one thing more frightening than America trying to provide leadership to the world, and that's America not trying to provide leadership to the world. Yeah. Reflect. Yeah, well, indeed. Um, you know, I don't feel very sanguine about the leadership that America is about to provide to the world uh, for fairly obvious reasons, um, some of which I've already articulated, many of which are implicit. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a very unknown quantity. We face a very, very uncertain future because this, this is going to be a very real... We, know, we all can see that. There's going to be a very real shift in power and there's going to be a very real shift in large-scale value systems. And, and it is hard to know how that is going to um, play out if America steps back. Um, but, again, America has been isolationist in the past. It hasn't gone well for either America or the world that it tried to withdraw from when that happened, because, of course, America is a part of the world, and then it belatedly realizes, oh, hell, a world war is happening. We better come in and take all the and credit. Won't, but and won't, and won't Trump naturally, because of his personality, not be satisfied now with leading America? He, won't he be starting to think, oh, there's a new stage for me now to try to bestride? Look, if there's one thing that I'm very happy to say, it's that I don't understand how Donald Trump's mind works. Um, <laughs> and, I don't, and, and, and it would be very, very worrying if I did, because it would mean I was psychotic. Um, 
the look, I don't, I don't know because it's very difficult to tell. All, all flippancy aside, it's very difficult to tell where these very, these very unstable personal tendencies about narcissism and about his need for adulation at, at all cost, um, his demagoguery, his, his wanting to do a, a victory tour, um, and all of that kind of stuff, where that hits up in his own psyche against his opportunism and against his pragmatism. He clearly has that too. And I don't think we, even, we don't you're have in, enough data also, points. When you're in power, you're not in control of events. In the way. When you're campaigning, no. you can determine what the agenda is. Yeah. You can't, Indeed. you know, if, if, if South Korea invades North Korea tomorrow, he can't yeah. say, well, I'm going to have a press conference about Muslims. Well, because he he's can, got to respond to that. Because he does all of those things. And so he's already, I mean, that is what he does. So the, the question is, of course, and we haven't even addressed this yet, is, is who's really going to be in charge? Um, I think there's a very strong argument that Pence is going to be running the show while Trump is looking after his business interests and or on the golf course. Um, whether he can, A, get away with that, whether the G- I think that's what the GOP hoped he would do because that was their safe uh, bet was that he could just be the puppet and they could you know, go about business as usual. He's such a loose cannon, I don't think they can trust him to do that. I don't think any of us can trust him to do that. So I think he really is an unknown quantity in a very real sense. And I think that the people who are uh, kind of cheerfully saying that the American system will, will kick in and, uh, and, and limit him, well, let's hope so. But he's not even in power yet. And, you know, people are slipping up and calling him the president. And people are, you know, and he's, he's dom- he continues to dominate the political narrative in a way that is, um, that, that is very, very worrying, even just as an indicator of where we might be heading. Can, can I just say one other thing about Finally. education, though, Finally, which I think is, is really important? Because Peter's making the point about experts who, who and absolutely, that we need to come back to a point where we respect expertise, both academic expertise, but we respect experiential expertise. We respect expertise where we find it across society, but we understand that in order to solve these problems, we need experts who speak languages, as you said, who understand comparative religion, who do all of those things. And to me, on the, on the level of education, it's not a coincidence that we've been talking for a decade or so about how the only thing we need to teach our science, technology, um, uh, medicine, and maths, and, and the humanities are a luxury we can't afford. Well, this is where we end up if we think the humanities are a luxury. We have, we have a, a government that actually can't solve the problems that it, that, it, that, it, that it is confronted with, whether or not it has created those. So I think we have to understand where all of the expertise comes from that we can bring to try to address these, uh, these issues. I think you'll find a lot of people in the room have a lot of sympathy with that. Well, with it that, is the RSA. It is, I know, it, I'm preaching it, it, to the it, choir. It, 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 it is the RSA. <laughs> Unfortunately, we've, we've, we've run out of time, but I'm going to ask, a, I'm going to do something completely unscientific. Maybe you forgive me for this. Um, I want to ask you, you could tell me, do you think that at the end of 2017, you'll say it was a better or a worse year than 2016? So those of you who think at the end of 2017, you'll say it was an even worse year than 2016, put your hands up. And those who think it, well, you'll say, no, it was a better year than 2016. No, they're so... We are. We are. We are just about on the side um, uh, of, of hope. Uh, thank you all very much. I'm sorry that we couldn't have more questions, but the one, ones that you asked uh, were great. It only reminds me to ask you to thank our wonderful uh, panel, Matthew Goodwin, Sarah Churchwell, and Peter Frankopan. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not download our free app to access video and audio files on the go? Just visit our website, thersa.org, and follow the links to the RSA Vision mobile app.